Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hi, everybody. This is Mike Clarkson. Uh, I co-chair Ogletree's Drug Testing Practice Group along with Raina Jones from Phoenix. And uh, thank you for joining me for this podcast. We're going to be talking today about false positive claims in drug testing. Um, There's a lot going on in the drug testing practice group uh, generally these days. um, And I encourage you all to follow our blogs uh, and our webinars Um, If you go to the Ogletree Deacons webpage and under the Insights button, uh, you click on Drug Testing, you'll be getting our our recent blogs. We've recently put up blogs on the New York and New Jersey changes uh, in marijuana in the workplace, which are attracting a lot of attention and very important. Uh, So uh, with that little commercial aside, I'm here to talk about false positive claims in drug testing cases. Um, And we'll talk about this from a couple different angles. Um, First, I'll talk about litigation uh, when this is brought up in litigation, but I'll also talk about uh, false positive things that come up more in the counseling context, whether that be CBD causing or not causing a positive for THC, uh, prescription drugs, and how they interplay with drug testing, uh, the famous or infamous poppy seed bagel uh, Vix Vapo Rub, um, creating or not creating positive tests for methamphetamine, etc. Um, but let's start with litigation. Um, I do a lot of this. I find this fascinating. This comes up in the following context: you'll get a plaintiff who has failed a drug test, and their claim is, "I don't use drugs." And after I failed your drug test, I took another drug test, and that was negative. So therefore, your drug test is faulty and or discriminatory. Um, This is a claim that I've defended any number of times. Uh, It's brought up fairly regularly, particularly for drug laboratories. Uh, They face this more than employers, but that's probably a factor of the sheer number of drug tests that a laboratory does. Um, There are a number of avenues to attack this kind of claim in litigation. they're all sort of one variation of apples and oranges. Uh, the first apples and oranges avenue to attack is when this person goes to get another drug test, they often choose a different modality, okay? So the first drug test that the person failed, let's assume that's a hair drug test, and they go and get a urine drug test that they pass, okay? So they fail the hair, they pass the urine Well, the first avenue of attack is that comparing a hair test to a urine test is an apples to oranges comparison. They have different look back periods, right? Hair looks back from day seven to about day 90, but does tells you nothing from days zero to seven. Urine testing tends to look back from day zero to day three or four at the most, a little longer with marijuana than with other drugs. So comparing hair to urine or urine to hair is an apples to oranges comparison. Um, The second apples to oranges comparison is the time delay, right? And this particularly comes up with urine or oral fluid drug testing. 
Uh, if a person fails test one and then goes to test two days later, um, that really renders the comparison apples to oranges, even if they're using the same modality, okay? Particularly if they're using urine or oral fluid. Because drugs metabolize out through the body and through the urine and oral fluid quickly. So if you wait a day or two uh, or three or four uh, in between your failed drug test and your past drug test, that time alone, of course, has caused the drugs to dissipate out of the body. And I say that even with normal water consumption. Of course, if the person who knows they failed drug test one consumes an inordinate amount of water, that's going to flush the body even further and render it more of an apples to oranges comparison than it would be otherwise. The third apples to oranges is just different technology. That doesn't render one of them any more valid or invalid than the other. Uh, all drug testing laboratories are using mass spectrometry, which is extremely precise and extremely accurate. But they may use a different uh, process to analyze the urine, to uh, pulverize or liquefy the hair, etc. And each of those technological differences, valid though they are, will render slightly different drug testing results. And occasionally, even the smallest variation can be enough to render a positive drug test a negative, right? All drug tests, as I'm sure you're aware, operate on a cutoff. You know, drugs present above the level of cutoff equal a positive test. Drugs below are negative. A small technological difference uh, can be enough to render the same sample uh, positive on one test and negative on the other. That does not speak to the to the veracity or the reliability of either the positive or the negative test. It's just a reality that different technologies applied to the sample. Um, and the last apples to oranges that I'll raise is just the natural variation between running different samples through uh, testing. If you took the same urine sample and divided it in, in two and ran it through the same technology, you wouldn't get exactly the same result. Uh, you'd get the same result, hopefully, within a plus or minus of a very small uh, variation. But sometimes that small variation itself can be enough. So each one or all of those um, can be a really effective defense to the claim that, hey, I failed your drug test and it must be unreliable or faulty because I don't use drugs. Now, the one that I really enjoy um, and have defended successfully several of times in litigation, and you should consider if you're facing this kind of case, oftentimes in the second sample, the one that the person passed the drug test on, you can still find evidence of the drug within the sample. Often the drug in that second sample is below cutoff, and that is a legitimately negative drug test. I am not calling into question whether that test should have been deemed positive. But if there is the presence of drug in that second drug test, that validates in almost all respects the first drug test, particularly, particularly, if the plaintiff in this case has denied any form of environmental contamination, it works like this. The plaintiff says, um, 
well, I failed your drug test and I went on to pass the second drug test. So your drug test is unreliable. And by the way, I've never used any drugs. I've never even seen uh, drugs of this variety. I have no idea how this happened. Well, that's really a rejection of any form of environmental contamination. And if you can prove that on drug test number two, the one that they passed, that they still had drug under the cutoff, then where did that drug come from? Did lab one and lab two create a false presence of drugs within uh, the system? No. Um, and this can often be the absolute end of the litigation. I have in certain cases even found in the second drug test, the negative one, that the donor's drug levels, although negative, were above the control samples that are run through a batch at the drug test lab works like this. The laboratory may be testing 65 or 70 samples in a batch. And as part of that batch, they also run through control samples that are known amounts. One is a negative control or a no drug control. One is a cutoff control at, a, at almost exactly the level with which the lab is going to use as a cutoff. And then they have high negative, uh, low negative controls, etc. If you find that sample donor's second sample, although negative, is below the high control, right? That means it has more drug in it than a spiked sample with drug. And when you find that, it is really something. One thing you can do, these are somewhat complicated concepts, I suppose. One thing you can do to make them simple is to chart all of the drug tests that were run through in a particular batch and mark on that chart where the cutoff is, where the no drug control is, where the low control is, where the high control is. What you'll see is a chart that has the vast majority of the samples are negative, a few are positive and way out above the control, and you find where your plaintiff is. Chances are, and this is proven true in case after case after case that I've handled, the negative drug test shows proof of drug just below the cutoff and above the control samples. That is a very, especially when charted in a visual way, you know, you can do this on a single sheet of paper. It is a very powerful way to present and prove that this plaintiff's story that they've never used drug and that this sample was unreliable is, is phony. And with that, I have had numerous plaintiff's lawyers walk away from their cases. They don't want to be stuck with somebody who has lied to them about their drug use. So um, this has been successful. I hope you can put it into play, particularly uh, valuable. Um, I have found where you've got the samples going through in a batch. Um, and actually, there's a strategic uh, angle there that you should consider, right? You will have to rule out environmental contamination to really put this strategy in play. Now, as I said, oftentimes the plaintiff will do that for you. They'll indicate in their complaint, I never used, I had no exposure. But you, if they don't, or if they are in an occupation where environmental exposure could happen, like police officers, you may have to establish the absence of environmental contamination before really effectuating this strategy. Okay.
So that's sort of the litigation uh, defense, if you will, in, in abbreviated fashion on false positive claims. But let's talk about some of the other things that come up separate from litigation, the, uh, the CBD, the prescription drugs, and then I'll talk briefly about poppy seed bagels and, and Vicks VapoRub. Um, CBD. This comes up a lot in uh, counseling calls recently. CBD has exploded in popularity. Uh, you can buy it at the gas station around the corner from my house. Um, it's, it's everywhere. CBD is, of course, made from the very same plant that makes, uh, you know, smokable marijuana and intoxicating marijuana. It, it is not a different uh, plant. And when made correctly, CBD should not contain any THC. But I have read that much of the CBD that's out there on the market is in fact contaminated with THC. So it is possible that a person who is using CBD uh, that is contaminated with THC will test positive for marijuana. Um, if the CBD is made correctly, they should not. But I, from what I've read, it's fairly common. I, the, the stat I remember from a recent article was 25% of it is contaminated. So it's not at all implausible that a CBD user will test positive for THC. Now, how are you to know? And of course, there is no way to know. The drug test will not differentiate between someone who smoked marijuana uh, to get high or use CBD for their arthritis or, you know, what other, it's, it's sold for every condition under the sun. But the, the drug test will not tell you which it is. The drug tests are extremely sensitive and accurate in identifying THC, but tell you nothing about where it came from. So this offers you a choice. If you are in a state where there are no protections for medical marijuana or recreational marijuana, then you can take a very strict line and refuse to accept someone's CBD-based explanation for their THC positive. However, about half of the states do provide some job protections for medical marijuana if you have a card. Now, no guarantee that a CBD user has a medical marijuana card. They certainly wouldn't have to get one to, to, uh, to purchase and use it. You want to think about that. That is a trap for the unwary. And now, uh, New Jersey, most recently, there are increasing protections for recreational marijuana users where you don't even have to have a medical marijuana card. So the CBD positive is complicated and certainly time for you to pause and make sure that there aren't hidden traps for people. The next trap that applies to both uh, CBD and prescription drugs is, of course, disability discrimination law. And, and let's talk about that in the context of prescription drugs. So prescription drugs can and will cause a positive drug test, right? Uh, heroin is an opiate, and there are plenty of legitimate opiates that are prescribed and used according to doctor's instructions. They, of course, are also uh, all too commonly, unfortunately, abused. So the drug test, again, is very sophisticated and will can identify minuscule amounts of opiates, but is not at all good at telling you whether this is illegal heroin or legally prescribed and used Percocet or some other opiate. Certainly, this is the job of your medical review officer to 
get the drug test results and call up the donor and say, hey, John Doe, I see that your test was positive for opiates. Is there a reason? And John Doe, if he's taking a legitimate prescription for Percocet or the like, should say, well, yes, I take Percocet for my back pain or my cancer pain. And the MRO should run the traps for you on that for sure. You will want to make sure that your MRO, particularly if you are a safety sensitive employer, you want to make sure that your MRO um, identifies for you uh, d- legitimate drug use that could cause a safety concern, and and uh, you'll need to tell them that. I don't think they do that automatically. But of course, CBD and prescription drugs pose a risk of uh, disability discrimination, right? If people are using either prescription drugs or CBD for an ADA-qualifying disability, you need to make sure that you are not losing the forest for the trees uh, and you are doing the ADA interactive process as applicable. Know too that uh, many of our clients uh, have called and asked questions about the use of on-site or instant read drug tests. Um, Those have a, a potential problem that impacts this here. You really want to verify your on-site or your instant read drug tests with a mass spectrometry laboratory-based test for fear that you will get false positives um, for legitimate drugs. The immunoassay screens that are used in those instant read or on-site drug tests are good, but they are certainly not good enough to base a termination decision on. So um, that's that's yet another trap uh, for the unwary here. Last, and as we're winding down here, I'll leave you with this, uh, the sort of poppy seed bagel and Vicks VapoRub complexities. Um, The poppy seed bagel is largely a myth. I I don't think there's a a legitimate amount of poppy seeds that you could eat that would cause you a positive for um, for opiates, Uh, yet this sort of still exists in the world. um, And you will hear it. Your MRO should ferret out the, the truth or falsity of that. Um, Vicks VapoRub is something that I learned fairly recently. Apparently some of these Vicks products in the past were made with an amphetamine that, um, can cause a false positive for methamphetamine. And to the extent that one of your donors identifies that he or she used Vicks, there are tests that laboratories can run to distinguish between legitimate Vicks and illegitimate methamphetamine. But the laboratories generally have to be told to run that test. Again, this is your MRO's job. Um, they should you know, ask people if there's a reason why they fell for amphetamines. And if someone says VIX, uh, they should alert the lab and have this done. But I wanted to sensitize you to this issue too, because in a very rare case, that can be uh, certainly complicating. This, uh, this continues to be a... Um, a very dynamic area with medical marijuana and now even recreational marijuana um, leading many of the changes and certainly one to be wary of. But again, uh, to finish where I started, again, uh, feel free to use and rely on Ogletree's um, uh, webinars and blog posts. They're free. That's nice. Um, And we can give you an alert uh, when the law changes in this area. This is one of the faster changing areas that I've I've ever had in my career in employment law and hard to stay abreast of these changes without a little bit of help. So I hope this was helpful. Um, I hope to have the chance to uh, 
to talk to any of you if you have a false positive claim in one of your cases or if you've got this come up in a in a drug testing positive. Um, I and Raina Jones and all 66 members of the Ogletree Drug Testing Practice Group are here to help. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.